0: Uh, as we think through, how do we make sense of the everyday mission of the people of God? And uh, I, was fast- I-, I knew nothing about your church. I knew nothing about your church. I was absolutely fascinated to find that it was started by three Scots. <laughs> now, for an Englishman, that's a problem. <laughs> I don't know what the equivalent would be for you, but already I'm feeling on edge. But what was really interesting was, for me at least, I'm sure you know this story only too well, but I'm hearing it for the first time, so here, my excitement. Here's two Scottish business people who come over to a new land to do their flax industry. I'm not really sure what flax is, I'm sounding like I'm knowledgeable, I have no idea, but they're doing it. And when they get here, they see things that, as Christians, they say, we really need to make a difference around here. We're not happy about some of the things that we see in terms of the slavery that was happening at the time. And two Christian businessmen decide that actually we want to do business, but we want to do it as follow Jesus. And so they begin a church fashioned around the idea of the dignity of everyone. And so this church is born. And I know you know this story only too well. But for me as an outsider coming in, apart from the fact that they're Scottish, if only they'd been English. But apart from that, what a tremendous story about business people who go, if I'm following Jesus, then it affects everything where our commitment to Jesus is greater than just flowing with the existing culture. Well, I know that in in your church here, you've been following this theme over the last uh, year or so, and uh, it's been great. And if you have been watching some of the DVDs that we've created in small groups, I'm sure you'll agree that TV puts 10 pounds on you. (laughs) We were asked by people in America, actually, could you put subtitles on? (laughs) I hope this makes sense today. Let's put the first slide up, perhaps. I want to just reflect for a few moments on the passage we read in Luke 10. You've got the images that um, we've used in the past there. You've got slightly more red dots. You know this story because this is your church, but let me just reflect on. This is a great image. We will use this. M- minds are up, yeah, but you, you, this is the original. When we did it, we used uh, fewer red dots because for us, the red dots, as you may know, represent the percentage of people in the UK who worship once a month or more. That's how we use the red dots. It's quite a sobering picture, isn't it? Here we are this morning, praying the Lord's Prayer. May your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And in the UK, 93, 95% of my population go, I'm not sure what you and I are doing this morning is anything A, I'd be interested in or B, even welcome to or see the relevance of. And we've been thinking through the idea of how do we make sense of mission when actually the followers of Jesus who commit themselves to being together actually relatively small? It does remind us of the story that Jesus told us, or the, the, the episode, it wasn't a story, the episode that we've read, where Jesus looks out over his culture in his day and he goes, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers... The workers are few. And then Jesus says, so I'm sending you. It's interesting because what you might have expected him to do at that point is say, so let's pray for more workers. That seems like the natural end of that sentence. But he goes, the harvest is great. The workers are few. So you, I want to use you. And in the UK, we've had to come to grips with the fact that being a, church worship, a, a, a worshiper who goes to church, who follows Jesus, who identifies themselves as disciples of Jesus, is countercultural. It's not what most of our neighbors do. And when we look around at our culture, we can get terribly angry at the way we think our culture's going. We can get terribly nostalgic about days gone by. Or we can get terribly depressed. But actually none of those responses are either A, appropriate or B, helpful. But Jesus says, the need has always been great. That's why I've chosen people like you. The way of mission includes all of us. I don't know if you picked it up as Cindy read the passage. I'm intrigued by this idea of the 72, and in the passage it says it was the 72 others. I don't know how accurate, exactly how accurate this is, but go with me. In Luke chapter 6, we've read about Jesus gathering disciples to him, and from amongst them, he chooses 12, the apostles, the named disciples. It would suggest, at least, that on that day when he chose his initial 12, there was a whole bunch of people who were gathered together. Imagine you were there that day. And uh, you tell your husband or your wife, I'm going because Jesus is going to pick his team today. And you all gather, and there's 30 of you. And, of course, Peter gets chosen first. You always knew that would be the case. And James and John, they're a little fiery, but you're kind of surprised, but they get chosen. But by the time the twelfth gets chosen, and it's Judas, and you've not been chosen, you're asking, am I, hang on, Judas? (laughs) And you go home, and uh, your family say, so are you you one of the twelve? No, not today. I'm one of the others. I'm one of the others. Four chapters later, it's your moment. Jesus gathers now the others. Now the unfortunate thing is you're not going to get named. (laughs) For 2,000 years, the church will just know you as others. You're anonymous. But Jesus sends you out two by two to 36 unnamed places. 36 villages, 36 towns that Jesus is planning to visit. And he says, I want to send you. I want to send you. 72 others, 36 places. Scattered. Now, when you look at this picture, It kind of feels overwhelming. But that's not, we've not all been together all week. We've been scattered. All over the town, the region. You've been sent. You know this. Sent. Sent on the mission of God. So the first thing is that This mission is about the others. It's about the unnamed going to the anonymous places. second thing is that actually mission often feels vulnerable. I wonder how many of you go, actually, I've got this covered. I'm fine. Jesus sends these disciples out without everything they need. Don't take everything you need. Go and rely on provision when you get there. You don't have all you need. I've not been to America very much, but the first time I came, it was a big adventure for me. Because I grew up as a boy with the heroic American on, in films and on TV. And do you know the disappointment? I've been here three times now. I've not met one cowboy. <laughs> I don't know where they all are, but they ain't here. I grew up with American music, about escaping on the highway. Bruce Springsteen talking about Born to Run, and I was there with him. I I grew up in a little uh, industrial town in north of England, but Bruce Springsteen sounded really glamorous when he talked about escaping these small towns on big bikes and going for it. You are the pioneer nation. You are the children of the children of the children of the pioneers. One of the downsides of that is it's very difficult to feel vulnerable because actually you want to feel like we've got this covered. But mission normally means that you're carrying the message of Jesus and the normal feeling is I don't know if I'm up to this. And that's how Jesus sends his disciples out. I want to tell you a story Uh, of a lady called Betty Childs. Betty Childs is a member of a church in San Francisco, and uh, she used some of the DVDs that we produced, and she wrote me quite a long email, and she told me about the difference that had happened in her life. Just bear with me, if you will. She said, I'd gone to this group, and they were talking about where might I serve God, where is the place of mission, where's my scattered place. And she said, I'm retired Actually, what she said, let me read the first sentence. When our Bible study group decided that our next study would be a British DVD series, I wasn't impressed. (laughs) But as she went through it, and she was challenged to think through, what does it look like for me? She said, the place I realized I frequent most often is my gym. I've been attending an exercise class of about 20 people for a couple of years. I know a few of the ladies, but it was strictly gym relationships. I think I understand what she means. She said, but I became aware and expectant of what could happen at that gym. And it wasn't long before one of the ladies shared with me that she was worried about her daughter. I told her that when I had the tendency to worry about my daughter, I prayed for her. I offered to pray with her for her daughter, and she agreed. And a few days later, she told me that her daughter could have been in danger. And she felt that because we prayed she was protected. I immediately wanted to thank God for answered prayer. I walked the lady to her car where we prayed, and we thanked God for protecting her daughter. I asked my new friend if she'd ever invited Jesus Christ into her life. She hadn't. I asked, would you like to invite him now? I told her he would always be with her. He would always hear her prayers. I was amazed when she said, yes, (laughs) she would like to pray. And she asked God's son, Jesus Christ, into her life. We prayed right there by her car on a beautiful summer day. She talked on about how that friend now worships with her in her church week by week. It's a great story. But let me just examine it a little. This is not a super-confident, all-competent woman. This is Betty, who's retired. This is Betty, who at first is not sure where God has placed her, and indeed what she ought to do. This is Betty, who doesn't know how to go past gym relationships. But when she meets a lady who's worried about her daughter, Betty doesn't say, oh, well, yes, I used to worry about my daughter, but I don't any longer now because I know the Lord's in charge. Betty says, yeah, I worry about my daughter too. I worry too. And I've got adult children, and when you're bringing them up, you think if you can get them to 15 or 16 without any major mishap, you've done quite well. And then they get to 16, and you think if we could just get to 18 without them going to jail, we'll have done really well. And then you think, if we can get them to 21 and just off our hands, that would be great. And then they come back again. And, um, and now they're 28 and you're still worried about them. I understand what it means to worry about adult children. And Betty says, when I worry about my children, the only thing i found helps is, I pray. Vulnerability. Second moment of vulnerability. Could we pray for your daughter? Would you like me to pray for your daughter? That's a massive vulnerable moment because the friend might go, no, you're a weirdo. <laughs> the third thing is not to say, let me, I will pray when I go home, but let me pray right now in the car park. And then the week after, how's it going? Because sometimes you, you, you offer prayer for people, but you don't want to find out in case it gets worse. Vulnerable. And then the fourth vulnerable moment, Do you want to know this, Jesus? Now, of course, that's San Francisco, so you'd expect that in San Francisco. It's not Northeast uh, America, is it? That's what vulnerable mission looked like for Betty. See, Jesus said, when you go, this is the message. Tell them the kingdom of God is near and heal, heal the sick. What have you got? Well, they will see your vulnerability, but what resource do you have? The only resource we have is a life that's been changed by Jesus and prayer. There are two other visitors in church this morning, and uh, we had a chance to talk before, and it's Bill and Tina, and they're sitting fairly close to the front, and they've given me permission to do this, and uh, they're just visiting this morning. But they told me a really encouraging story that I want to tell you. They said that one of the members of your church here, called Bob, taught their children. And Bill and Tina don't go to this church regularly. They're just visiting today. But they said that teacher that goes to this church, the way he dealt with our children, the way he taught them, the way he gave them himself to our children and the children of generations in the school that he taught, made all the difference to our children as now they are grown up. And Bill said this, this is the bit you've got to hear. When I knew that Bob came to this church, my feeling and regard for this church went sky high. That's right, that's what you said. And I guess Bob didn't wake up every morning going, yes, more children. (laughs) I bet Bob didn't wake up every morning going, I am going to stamp something in their lives every day. Because some days, I'm married to a teacher, and some days teachers just roll out of bed and go three more weeks to summer. (laughs) (laughs) You don't feel victorious. but the red dot affects so many others. And maybe the credibility of our church is enhanced when they go, well, if they're like you, there might be something in it. Last two thoughts. The joy of mission. Jesus has said to them, When you do this, by the way, people might reject you. That's okay. In my church at home, it's the major reason we struggle with mission is because we fear that people reject us. Here's the truth. If if your friends didn't know you were a Christian before and reject you because they find out you are a Christian who's passionate, they didn't really know you. And if they reject you before you become a friend, you would have never become a friend because they would have found out. Rejection happens. It's not the end of the world. The message is greater than the fear. But the good thing is, the disciples come back and they go, Jesus, it works. They actually come back and say, Even the demons submitted to us. Even evil was halted. It works. Those two Scottish businessmen who founded your church discovered that even evil can be overcome by the good news of Jesus. Even the things that kept people captive Don't get the final word. Even death itself, didn't we celebrate last week, is overcome. And Jesus says to them, Rejoice, because new life comes. But rejoice more that your names are written in heaven. And I want to leave you with this last thought. The way I've always understood that phrase is that in heaven there's like a big register, a class register, and it's like Jesus is ticking off your name. Well, I know you, I know you. And it may well have echoes of that sort of thinking. But I wonder whether as well. There's this idea that your name is written in heaven because actually heaven is where God's getting his will done. It's not a place you go simply where you go when, after you die, but it's actually the realm of God... <gasps> May your kingdom come, may your will be done in heaven, on earth as it is in heaven. And maybe our names being written in heaven is that we're part of the story that God's wanting to write here, in your families, in your workplace, at the gym, with your neighbors. That's the joy. The joy is not that we had a comfortable life. The joy is not that all things went well. The joy is, I was a teacher, and I just turned up every day and I I gave my best to the kids, because I was serving Jesus really, and it made a difference. The joy is, I was a retired grandma, and I led someone else to Jesus, because I wasn't afraid of looking vulnerable. The joy is, I was a businessman. And I wanted to see a country change. And I wasn't afraid of looking the odd man out. May we know the joy of the vulnerable mission, the everyday mission of the people of God. Amen.